I always, for the sake of our guests, like to point out the gold insert uh, in your service folder that you're very much invited to use and also to take home with you as uh, there's a Bible study on the backside connected um, to our, uh, our message today. As many of you know, a few weeks ago, uh, my family and I were able to go down to visit my parents who live in Florida, and one of the things we did while we were there was to also visit my sister's family who live in Vero Beach. And so this pretty amazing thing happened uh, that we hadn't really planned for, at least not at the very beginning, that we spent our 4th of July on the beach near the Atlantic Ocean, which just was a really picturesque, awesome day. But being parents of children, one of the things that we really much, as we were going to be at the beach for a while, needed to impress on them is that um, the beach at the ocean is not like the beach at Lake Marion. And there are many different ways that it's different. But the one that struck me, or one of them that struck me so much, was the power and the bigness of the waves, at least on that day. And unlike the uh, wave pool at a water park, there's no intermission. They just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And so especially with our two younger kids, before we got there, we took them aside and just said, hey, the ocean is big, the waves are powerful, the ocean can be dangerous. Now, one of the things when you're trying to tell your kids something is that you don't always know what's going on in their brain while you're talking. And even though they're nodding their head doesn't mean that they're necessarily listening. Has anyone been there before? But some reason, it must have been a God thing, we had a real-life, I guess, help to our parenting that day. Not too long after we got there, Elias was standing in about ankle-deep water, so not too far off the shore. He was standing in the water um, with his back to the ocean and his face and front facing us on the beach. And when all of a sudden, he was in ankle-deep water, mind you, all of a sudden a big wave came and just basically swallowed my seven-year-old up, almost, and he found himself on the ground. In a minute, not a minute, in a second's time, he went from being mostly dry to totally soaked and wondering, what was that that just hit me? See the parenting help God gave me that day? Because here's what Elias came to understand with that little reality check, that mom and dad knew what they were talking about, and the ocean is a lot stronger than I am. And so I had better have a healthy fear, a healthy respect for my parents, for the ocean and those big waves. A reality check. I think sometimes we need that. I think sometimes in the midst of life, we need a wave to come by and just knock us over. We need a reality check to remind us of, of who we really are in the grand scheme. Because the truth is, is that from the very day you were born, guess who you have a propensity of putting at the center of your world and universe? Does one of a, does one of the, a baby's first words help at all? Mine? Me! 
we have a propensity. We have the natural, sinful leaning to put ourselves at the center of our universe. You don't have to try to do that. It just happens if you're not careful. And if that goes on too long, what happens is we begin to think that we're pretty good, we're pretty self-sufficient, we can take care of ourselves, I don't need any help, I'm pretty successful, and on and on and on. And sometimes we need a wave to just come and (laughs) remind me, you're nothing, Ben. You're not as big and self-sufficient as you think you are. That's kind of what we have in our lesson for today. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, all right, this is going to be an encouraging lesson. Pastor's going to tell me all about how I'm nothing and I can't take care of myself and I'm going to go home, you know, totally demoralized. And there might be a little bit of that. But that's not the goal of this text. It's not the goal of my, my sermon The goal is that we leave with a healthy respect for the greatness of God and a renewed purpose for how I fit into that glory and greatness of God. And all of that brings us back to Moses. It's been, at the time of our text, two months since God, glorious, big, and great, divided the Red Sea and allowed the Israelites to leave. At the time of our text, it's been one month since last week's message. And last week, if you weren't here, we looked at how the Israelites' normal habit was to grumble and complain when things bad happened. Anyone else have that habit? (laughs) And God, in his grace, sent them bread as they were grumbling about being hungry, sent them bread from heaven called manna that came every single morning for the next 40 years, and not just like a little bit of bread, enough bread to feed 2 million people every morning. It's been one month since then. If you look at the screen, we can kind of see where um, Israel has come. Um, You see Egypt in the top left. If you can um, see that little red line, they've come south to where it says Sinai Peninsula, The wilderness of sin you see printed at the bottom of that peninsula, that's where they were last week. If you keep following us a little bit to the right, you see or don't see words that are quite small on there. It says Mount Sinai. That's where they've come. Now, when you think of Mount Sinai, first of all, we think Moses was quite familiar with this area. You know why? That middle 40 years of his life, this is the area he spent it. In fact, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, guess where he was? On Mount Sinai. And and, and in that Exodus chapter 3, God told him, you're going to be back here, Moses, to worship me. Our text is a fulfillment of that promise. They're back at Mount Sinai. And when you think of Mount Sinai, what's the event that you most think of that happened there? God giving what to his people? Anyone? The Ten Commandments, exactly. Our chapter comes right before the Ten Commandments giving, not by accident, but because God used chapter 19 to prepare his people for the giving of the commandments that we read about in chapter 20. So what happened right before the Ten Commandments? 
Let's turn to Exodus 19. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture right now um, with, uh, without really stopping too much. So please uh, get your mind focused to, to follow along as I read. In the third month after the Israelites left, on the very day, they came out to the desert of Sinai. You kind of now can visualize where that would have been. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings. We're going to come back to that later. And brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully... And keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. He chose Israel to be that treasured possession from whom the Savior would someday come. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites, Moses. So Moses then went back down the mountain and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had just commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, and this was a great response. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. He went back up the mountain, which I'm going to take just a second here. I think most of us, if we know anything about Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, we think of Moses going up and down the mountain twice. In Scripture, he actually, in reality, went up and down about seven times or so. This was that second time. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people. The people all responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord said to Moses, Now go to the people, consecrate them. This is a, a, a word that means to make holy. So there was like a special rituals that God had given them to sort of um, show their repentance and in a way make them holy before God. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain. You can't come too close to a holy God. And tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder, lightning, a thick cloud covered or was over the mountain, and there was a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone there, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke 
because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. Are you visualizing this? The whole mountain trembled, that is shook, not just a little bit, violently. And the sound of the trumpet, which wasn't from the camp, but was from the heavens, grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. There's these things we come across in Scripture that you can't even really understand unless you were there. This is one of them. Smoke, fire, thunder, lightning, mountain shaking, trumpets blaring louder and louder until I'm sure it was like you're at a concert and your ears are ringing. I don't know exactly what that would have been like, but I know how I would have felt. I know how you would have felt. It's exactly how everyone felt in the camp. Back to verse 16, everyone in the camp trembled. <laughs> I guess. I think of how scared my family gets when there's thunder and lightning. And here, this whole mountain looks like it's going to explode. And the response of the people was fear and trembling. Fear and awe and respect of how big, how powerful, how huge God is. And in contrast, how small and little and itty-bitty the people around the mountain were. And as, as you look at this, you wonder, what and why is God doing this? Does he just like to scare his people? Does he have a superiority complex and just kind of show off? What's the point? Why come like this? Why not come like the shepherd who brings and gathers his flock? Why not? Why come and scare your people? There's this uh, verse in the Bible that comes up over and over again throughout all of Scripture. It's the theme of the book of Proverbs. It's this phrase, this sentence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation of wisdom. That you cannot, that I cannot have a proper understanding of God unless it starts with how big and great and powerful and perfect and glorious he is. That everything, Solomon writes, starts there. Fear, that is a little bit of trembling. Fear, that's awe and respect. Fear, that's like how Elias felt when he got knocked over by a wave, but a million times more amped up. That the fear of God is the foundation on which we can understand God is the foundation, other than Christ, of our entire faith. And I think we need to hear that. I think we, we need to have these moments where we're confronted, like the Israelites, with the glory of God and just how big he is. You know why? Because I have the propensity not to put God at the center of my life, but to put me at the center of my life. I sometimes get this mistaken notion that 
it's not that I live for God's glory, but that in some way God exists to bring me glory. And if you don't think that you ever feel that way, maybe it's because I need to explain it a little more. That we sometimes have this mistaken notion that God exists to bring us glory. How does that happen? Well, when you can't get God to do what you want or what you're praying for, how do you react? How do I react? In trust? In understanding? Or when we can't get the big old God, the creator of the universe, to do what little old me wants, we respond with what? Most or many times. Anger, frustration, Think of your prayer life. When Luther wrote about like what a balanced prayer would be, scripturally he wrote about praise, thanks, confession of sins, and asking God for things. Which of those defines your prayer life the most? To a person, I would think, and this may not be true for sure, but asking God for things. And it's not that it's bad to ask him, but does that show you a little bit of where sometimes our heart is trying to twist God's arm, the great glorious God, instead of just praising him and trusting him to do what he knows is best? In fact, sometimes we even get this idea, um, and you've maybe never verbalized it, you probably haven't, but in reality you play this game with God. We, we play this game that the creator of the universe owes us things. Lord, did you see I gave an extra $10 to the offering this week? Lord, did you see how I volunteered even though I really didn't have time for volunteering at church? I made time for you, Lord. Did you see I've been coming to church more regularly, Lord? Did you see that at work, at school? I did the right thing instead of the, the wrong thing. Lord, isn't that cool of me? Now it's your turn. <laughs> you owe me. big, awesome God who shook Mount Sinai. He doesn't owe us anything. He's God, and we're here to bring him glory. And sometimes the Israelites, what they needed in that moment was to be struck by how big and glorious God was, because only then could they really make sense of their life. We all need those moments, and I want to, since we weren't at Sinai, I want to give you a moment like that right now. Before I, I share this, um, I need to say a thank you to a pastor named Louis Giglio who gathered these uh, statistics for me, and I get to share them with you. I want you to think a moment about our universe, and I, I want you to think about some clear night, you're looking up at the sky and it looks so big and so huge, that universe or that galaxy. But it's not, we, we do not nearly compute in our brains how big it really is. And to understand how big it is, I want to just talk about three planets real quickly. The first planet I'd like to talk about is the planet, the only planet in our solar system it's called, it's uh, the only planet in our solar system. Right, is everyone sleeping or, or uh, not? No. 
The sun, right? All right, so the sun. Now, the sun is huge. In fact, it's a million times the size of the earth. So I'm going to come back to this a few different times in this illustration. I want you to consider the earth as being the size of a golf ball, okay? So in an illustration where the earth is the size of a golf ball, in contrast, the sun would be as big. That sun you see in the sky would be 15 feet in diameter, which is from cone to cone. And if we were to think of this as a circle, the crest of the sun would come to about where the tip of my finger is. Where, where's Minnesota? <laughs> Better, where are you? Where am I? If you filled up the sun with the earth, you could fit 960,000 earths inside of the sun. That's enough golf balls to fill a school bus. Now that blows your mind, doesn't it? But not quite as much as the next thing that I'm going to tell you. There's a star that astronomers have found called Betelgeuse. And Betelgeuse is twice the size, not of the sun, but of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. If the Earth was a golf ball, the diameter of Betelgeuse would be six Empire State Buildings on top of each other. This is a star up in the universe, the heavens that you see. And if you don't understand how big that is compared to a golf ball, I suggest, as Louis did, that you go to New York City, take a golf ball, set it at the base of the Empire State Building, look up, and imagine six times as high, and look at that little golf ball. Where's Minnesota? Where am I? Betelgeuse is so big that you could fit 2.6 trillion, 262 trillion Earths inside of it. That's enough golf balls to fill the Metrodome 3,000 times. And that's not the biggest star in the galaxy. Just recently, they found one um, that they estimate be called Can Canis Majoris. They estimate that to be, well, if the Earth was a golf ball, the diameter would be as high as Mount Everest, six miles long. Seven quadrillion Earths you could fit inside of it. That's enough golf balls to fill the state of Texas two feet deep. And here's what I want you to think about today. Because it blew my mind when I, when I listened to Louis talk about this. None of that is bigger than your God. He spoke and Canis Majoris came to be. And that is the God that you and I have and, guiltfully, the God that sometimes we think exists for our glory instead of us living for his. This is that moment I warned you about earlier. I'm insignificant in comparison 
to the size of the world. I, I can't even find myself on the earth. But here's the goal of the message today and really what God is trying to do on Mount Sinai. I may be insignificant, but I am not insignificant to God. I may be insignificant when it comes to the size of the universe, but you and I amazingly are not insignificant to God. In fact, before he came down with the thunder and the lightning and the mountain shaking and all of that, let me remind you of what he wanted Moses to tell the Israelites in preparation for his glory. He says, tell them, you yourselves have seen what I've done to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That is a beautifully apropos example. Because how did Israel get out of Egypt? Did they run faster than the Egyptian chariots? No. Did they fight to get away? No. God moved a sea. He swooped down, in essence, picked them up, put them on himself, and flew them to freedom and to deliverance. Why? <laughs> Why would the God who created Canis Majoris and everything else do that 100% motivated by love? They had nothing that they could give him. The big old God. Nothing that he owed them ever. It was purely love to make insignificance significant. Israel's deliverance story is also ours. We stand here, sit here, amazed at the glory and majesty of God, I pray today, that the one who created the universe created little itty-bitty me. So much thought and time went into the creation of you that there is not a single person who's ever lived that is exactly like you. You have a different fingerprint, a unique set of gifts. God knows, the God of the universe, um, how many hairs are on your head, even though that changes every day. He knows how you're feeling on your good days and your bad days. And then what do we do? God, you owe me. <laughs> how dumb that sounds. How much we need that reality check to just blow us off our feet and to help us to, as I talked with the kids, be excited, to rejoice, to be overflowing with praise for what an awesome God we have. Now, if you were God and you created Canis Majoris and then these little guys called human beings decided to sort of reject you and not listen to you and, and be sinful as we are, what would you do? Think about that as I share with you what God did. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, being in very nature God, glorious, big, creator of the universe, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. <laughs> but he made himself nothing. 
He took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. If that wasn't humbling enough, he humbled himself more and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The big, awesome, powerful God of the universe became like us. And humbled himself that we might be with him. Even though he didn't have to, he gave up his glory so that we might be in glory forever with him. And only, only through him and his forgiveness and work for us on the cross. (laughs) Now, If that doesn't get something stirring inside of you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that is, I don't know if you have a heartbeat this morning. The grace of God come down to earth. The glory given up that we might be with him forever in heaven. So where do we go from here? I just have two very tangible takeaways that I'd like you to have. Two things. One, we have some people here with control issues. Let go more. What can we really control? And why do we need to even think that we're in control when we have the creator of the universe who not only is in control, but loves us too? Loosen the grip that is strangling your life and your happiness and trust the glory, trust God and his awesome power that we've seen in his glory today. And number two, Reflect some of that glory and make your life about him. If, you, if a person is an unbeliever, they look at their life and they come to the conclusion at some point that none of it matters. If you're a Christian, you realize there is a God and you come to the conclusion not that nothing matters, but that nothing else matters. That God gave up his glory, that we might live in glory. And then, as it's written in 1 Corinthians, he tells us that the thing that we can do most of all with our life is very simply, no matter if if you're a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever you are, whatever stage of life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, whatever it is, for his glory. Why? Because he's telling you to do it. Because he deserves it. Because he's the creator of the universe and loves you so much that he saved us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, sometimes it's good to be hit by ocean waves. There was wisdom right before you gave the Ten Commandments to remind the people of your love but also your power. 
Today, Lord, as we reflect on that event in the life of Israel, we pray that you use it with your Holy Spirit's help to give us a healthy fear of you and awe and to respond by giving our lives to you. Lord, help us every day to understand the glory that you have and that nothing, nothing is out of your control. Lord, uh, we also come to you in prayer today and we ask for your, your blessing upon our Vacation Bible School this week as we uh, teach the kids to stand strong, be with our helpers and our leaders and allow the words that they share to work in their hearts that they understand that the only way that they can stand strong is with you and through Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time,